Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay. You're a psychiatrist with all the latest mental health related news, including everything about the mind, brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits, how to improve your relationships, and how to make sense of media reports about the latest research into the causes of mental illness and potential new treatments. All that delivered to you without the hype and distortion of other media sources and with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry. Along the way, trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment, as well as to better inform the general public about mental health issues. And welcome to this July 27th edition for 2016. Hope that you've been feeling well and surviving the heat wave and also surviving the onslaught of political convention coverage. No matter what party you favor, I hope you're not watching too much of it. There's only so much of that you can take, you know. We're going to start tonight's podcast by looking at meditation. It is remarkable to me that something like meditation, which not all that long ago was considered some hippie-ish carryover from the 60s, some fringe pseudoscience form of therapy, is now being studied scientifically at major universities, and there are multiple published articles in peer-reviewed, respected scholarly journals documenting the benefits of it. Um, Hard science, mind you, touting the benefits of meditation. Uh, This has certainly been a revolution in looking at this modality. So this latest article we're going to talk about now is how body-mind meditation can boost your attention and your health and lower your stress. Meditation has long been promoted as a way to feel more at peace. But research from a Texas Tech University faculty member shows it can significantly improve attention, working memory, creativity, immune function, emotional regulation, self-control, cognitive and school performance, and healthy habits while reducing stress. They have developed a novel method of mindfulness meditation called integrative body-mind training. Meditation encompasses a family of complex practices that includes mindfulness meditation, mantra meditation, yoga, tai chi, and something called qi gong, which I admit I haven't heard of. Of these practices, mindfulness meditation often described as non-judgmental, sorry, non-judgmental attention to present moment experiences. In other words, staying in the moment and not directing your thoughts in a particular place, has received most attention 
in neuroscience research over the past two decades. For example, when we observe our thoughts or emotions in the mind, we are often involved in them. With this integrative body-mind training practice, you distance your thoughts or emotions and realize they are not you. Then you see the reality in an insightful and different way. Mindfulness helps you be aware of these mental processes at the present, and you just observe without judgment of these activities. Integrative body-mind training avoids struggles to control thought, relying instead on a slate of restful alertness that allows for a high degree of body-mind awareness while receiving instructions from a qualified coach who provides body adjustment guidance, mental imagery, and other techniques while soothing music plays in the background. Thought control is achieved gradually through posture, relaxation, body-mind harmony, and balance. Integrative body-mind training works by the brain through the central nervous system and the body through the autonomic nervous system interaction. The integrative body-mind training coaches help participants to change both body and mind states to achieve a meditative state. This is why participating in just five 20-minute sessions of integrative body-mind training has shown increased attention, relaxation, calmness, body-mind awareness, and brain activity. Most participants notice a significant decrease in daily stress, anxiety, depression, anger, and fatigue. Additionally, integrative body-mind training participants show an overall improvement in emotional and cognitive performance, as well as improved social behavior. The specific parts of the brain most affected by the integrative body-mind training, areas called the anterior cingulate cortex and adjacent medial prefrontal cortex, are mainly involved in self-control ability. Deficits in self-control have been shown in mental disorders such as attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, otherwise known as ADHD, addictions, mood disorders, and post-traumatic stress disorder. Since integrative body-mind training could improve self-control effectively, it may help prevent and treat mental disorders. In the education field, since integrative body-mind training improves attention, cognitive performance, and self-control, it could help those with ADHD or learning difficulties to improve academic performance and school behavior. The next step in this research will be to conduct large-scale, long-term studies to more fully understand brain-body mechanisms of mindfulness and their applications. Well, <clears throat> for those of you who are interested, uh, this work is ongoing, 
at Texas Tech University. Uh, there's also been a lot of research on body and mind in deep meditation that's been going on at the University of Oregon. There you have it. <clears throat> no longer a fringe new age type of treatment. Uh, hard science documenting and touting the benefits and trying to learn more about it. <clears throat> now for those of you who are interested in getting into meditation yourselves, uh, you don't necessarily have to go somewhere to pay for an extensive uh, series of classes or um, necessarily have a very structured type of meditation like what's talked about in this article or have a coach or a trainer in it. Um, there are apps um, that you can get on your phone that will introduce you to meditation and it really only takes 15 or 20 minutes a day. Uh, the apps are useful to get you started to learn and practice how to do it. It's not something you can just do right off the bat. Uh, it's something that takes some practice, uh, takes some degree of learning and developing it as a skill uh, before you find that you can actually do it and, and get the benefits from it. Uh, <clears throat> but it's definitely something that pays off in terms of coping better with stress and feeling more centered and balanced emotionally and uh, as this article demonstrates, thinking more clearly. Well, we're going to shift gears with the next article that we're talking about, but still keep it in the same vein as far as mind-body connections. But this next article we're going to talk about has to do with irritable bowel syndrome, which uh, unfortunately is a very painful and devastating gastrointestinal disorder that many people suffer that is absolutely impacted by people's level of stress. Uh, there are many gastrointestinal disorders like irritable bowel syndrome that involve both brain-to-gut pathways and reverse, gut-to-brain pathways. <clears throat> there are definitely reciprocal signals that go back and forth between the brain and the gut. And that's key in researching uh, what happens in irritable bowel syndrome. New research indicates that in patients who have IBS or indigestion, there is a distinct brain-to-gut pathway where psychological symptoms start first and then separately a distinct gut-to-brain pathway where the gut symptoms start first. Now in this latest study, people had higher levels of anxiety and depression. These were significant predictors of developing irritable bowel syndrome or indigestion within a year. People who didn't have higher levels of anxiety or depression at the start of the study, but had documented irritable bowel syndrome or indigestion, reported significantly higher levels of anxiety and depression after one year, showing that if you start out anxious and depressed within a year, you're going to have gastrointestinal problems, 
And in the reverse, if you start out with gastrointestinal problems, within a year, you're going to wind up anxious and depressed. The researchers calculated that in a third of these individuals, the mood disorder starts before the gastrointestinal disorder, but in the other two-thirds, it goes the other way. The gastrointestinal disorder starts before the mood disorder. Uh, this is very interesting to me because I've always observed that gastroenterologists' patients who suffer from these disorders have a lot of anxiety and depression. Well, we'll wrap up our thoughts about this research and bring you more mental health-related news when we come back for this next commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org. From Doug Dahlgren, an action series that grabs you and won't let go. Four members of Congress all die within months. Each death appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary war heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search uncovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun, Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren, in Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back. This is Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. And we're talking about some research into irritable bowel syndrome. Remember, before the break, we said that most people have the gastrointestinal disorder first, and then within a year, they're suffering from depression and or anxiety. In about a third of people, it's the other way around. They start out with anxiety and depression, and within a year, they wind up with irritable bowel syndrome or indigestion. The data from this research indicates that some patients with irritable bowel syndrome have a primary gut disease that may not only explain their gut symptoms, but also their psychological distress. There are now three studies they've done which all show 
this new gut to brain pathway. Targeting the gut is much easier than the brain, and in doing so, may be possible to relieve not only the gut pain, but also the anxiety and depression that arises from gut disease. Now, they don't go into specifics, but of course, we already know that there's a lot of research being done into the possibility of treating depression and anxiety with different probiotics. Uh, there is one in particular that was found to be helpful. It's sold by a company from the Netherlands called Winclove, and it's called Ecologic Barrier. Um, it's not available in the United States yet, but hopefully someday soon. Now, I can just tell you anecdotally from my own practice, it's always been my observation that when people have irritable bowel syndrome or indigestion or uh, other gastrointestinal diseases, uh, even inflammatory bowel diseases like Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, that my experience has always been treating the anxiety and depression successfully will significantly relieve these patients' symptom burden in terms of their gut symptoms. That would imply that these folks are the ones who have the brain-gut pathway that is uh, somehow causing problems. And when you fix the problems in the brain or you address them somehow, then uh, that alleviates the gut symptoms. And uh, to me, that was always very prevalent. So uh, it's interesting to me that this can also go the other way around. For the meantime, uh, I think what the irritable bowel syndrome and chronic indigestion sufferer or the inflammatory bowel disease sufferer can do is uh, definitely try to maintain good mental health, and this will help with your gut health. All right, next up on psychiatry today, we are going to talk about how infections and antibiotic use may be linked to manic episodes in people with serious mental illness. Now, in research using patient medical records, investigators from Johns Hopkins University and the Shepherd Pratt Health System, both in Maryland, report that people with serious mental disorders who were hospitalized for mania were more likely to have been on antibiotics to treat active infections than a group of people without any kind of mental disorder. Although the researchers caution that their study does not suggest cause and effect, they note that it does suggest that an infection, use of antibiotics, or other factors that change the body's natural collection of gut and other bacteria may individually or collectively contribute to behavioral changes in some people with mental disorders. So here we have a tie-in with the previous article. Again, 
looking at the connections between our microbiome, the bacteria that normally inhabit our bodies and contribute to normal bodily functions, especially gut bacteria, and mental disorders. Now, the findings were published on July 18th in the journal called Bipolar Disorders, and it adds to the evidence that the body's immune system, so-called gut-brain axis, again, which we were just talking about, and the particular bacterial microbiome each person has play an integral part in the ebb and flow of psychiatric symptoms and psychiatric disorders, including bipolar disorder and schizophrenia. <clears throat> the authors were quoted as saying that, of course, more as always, they always say more research is needed, right? But then they say their research suggests that if we can prevent infections and minimize antibiotic treatment in people with mental illness, then we might be able to prevent the occurrence of manic episodes. This means we should focus on good quality health care and infection prevention methods for this susceptible population and pay extra attention to things such as flu shots, safe sex practices, and urinary tract infections in female patients. Well, I think it's a little bit overstated to say that simply avoiding infections and use of, and therefore the need for antibiotics will eliminate manic episodes. Uh, because the mood swings of bipolar disorder are multifactorial, and while it certainly is interesting to consider the possibility that at least in some patients, some of the time, if you alter the body's uh, microbiome <clears throat> by taking an antibiotic, and that changes the bacterial flora in their gut, and that furthermore alters the gut-brain access in a way to allow or trigger a manic episode, you know, yes, that's very important and very interesting to think we can manipulate that. Or alternatively, is it some other kind of immune system reaction to the infection itself that is what's causing the manic episode? But there are certainly so many other things that can cause a manic episode. Um, just look at the fact that if someone with bipolar disorder has a period of time of sleep deprivation, in very, very little time, their mood can be extremely elevated. Um, so it's clearly important the uh, bacterial flora in the body, but again, there are so many other ways that someone became, can become manic. Now, this research grew out of an interest in the long-observed connections among infections, the microbiome, and symptoms of mental illness. For example, numerous studies have shown that experimental alterations in the microbiome of animals can alter their behavior. Because antibiotics kill bacteria and can disrupt the makeup of the microbiome, researchers looked at records of antibiotic use in patients treated at the Shepherd Pratt Center, a psychiatric hospital in Baltimore, either 
uh, as hospitalized inpatients or as day treatment patients. Uh, <clears throat> almost two-thirds of them were female, and all of them were ages uh, between ages 18 and 65. 234 of them were hospitalized for mania. 101, just the hospital diagnosis was bipolar disorder, not specifying manic or depressed. 70 for major depression, and 197 for schizophrenia. And they were taking antibiotics for a wide range um, of things uh, and different types of antibiotics, tetracycline, penicillin, sulfonamides, cephalosporins, fluoroquinolone, macrolides, and that included skin infections, respiratory infections, mouth infections, and urinary tract infections. And the researchers surveyed 555 healthy controls who did not have a psychiatric diagnosis, including 347 men, uh, sorry, 347 women and 208 men between the ages of 20 and 60. And <clears throat> these folks were queried about their antibiotic use. And they examined the antibiotic usage as an indirect way to measure for the presence of infection, um, which I personally don't think that's very exact. We all know, unfortunately, doctors prescribe antibiotics indiscriminately at times when there isn't really a bacterial infection. But regardless, uh, antibiotic usages were assessed through medical records with the patients and through an interview with the participants in a comparison group. Of those who were hospitalized for mania, episodes of heightened energy and overactivity often associated with bipolar disorder, that's what mania is, 18 of them, or 7.7%, were taking antibiotics, compared to only 1.3% of the controls. This represents a more than five-fold increase in the odds of being in the mania group if you're taking antibiotics. On the other hand, just over 3% of people hospitalized for schizophrenia, 4% of people hospitalized for bipolar depression, and 2.9% of people hospitalized for major depression were taking antibiotics. Um, you know, some thoughts I had about reading this, first time I read about this research, people with psychiatric diagnoses unfortunately don't take very good care of themselves. So they may be more prone to infections anyway. And so I think that makes it a little difficult to draw these types of conclusions. The researchers looked at whether any particular site of infection, such as mouth, skin, or respiratory system, correlated with hospitalization for an acute psychiatric illness. And they found that that didn't matter but 15 women had urinary tract infections, which didn't occur in men. Uh, for those of you who don't know, just because of the different structure uh, of the urinary tract in female anatomy, they're much more prone to urinary tract infections than men. <clears throat> well, so there are several ways infections and antibiotics could directly or indirectly impact psychiatric symptoms. We'll examine that and have other mental health-related news after this break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. 
45 years of experience is behind the most trusted name in auto transportation. Passport Transport, the first and finest today. That's why Passport Transport is the preferred auto transport for major auto manufacturers, concours, museums, tours, and collectors, and should be your choice from across the state to across the country. When you have the need, go to PassportTransport.com and enjoy the peace of mind referenced experience will give you. Passport Transport. Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. Well, we're talking about some researchers who found seemingly a very significant link to people with mental disorders who have infections and are taking antibiotics for said infections, especially those who have bipolar disorder that uh, does taking antibiotics for these infections put them at higher risk for becoming manic. Well, among the possibilities are that the systemic inflammation caused by the infection itself may lead to psychiatric symptoms. Uh, Certainly we know that when you have an infection, your immune system is activated, there's inflammation, there are these inflammatory proteins that are in higher circulation in the blood, and we know that these inflammatory proteins called cytokines are certainly associated with depression. And then alternately, is it that the antibiotics disrupt the gut's microbiome, killing off good bacteria, which may also affect the mind by increasing inflammation if more bad bacteria are present, or if we couple this with the research we talked about earlier as far as the brain-gut reciprocal connections, is that the trigger for altering the Uh, gut bacteria 
in a bad way with the antibiotic that kills off the desirable bacteria there and uh, thereby triggering uh, a, a signal to the brain uh, or a loss of a signal to the brain perhaps leading to the manic episode. Well, the same research team <clears throat> at Johns Hopkins um, is looking into this. Uh, one study is looking at whether suppressing inflammation in the gut with probiotics in people with mental illness will reduce the recurrence of manic episodes. Um, that'd be interesting to find out. Certainly, uh, one might contemplate the ease of convincing bipolar patients to take probiotics as opposed to mood stabilizers, but uh, I would be highly skeptical that that alone would help keep them stable. It'd be great if it did, but uh, I have to figure there's more to it than that. Um, again, because we know it isn't just inflammation and infection uh, that can trigger mood episodes. We know that uh, sleep is another major mechanism for that. All right, well, next up on psychiatry today, a <clears throat> I guess we'll call it an um, adolescent mental health related article. One-third of students report elevated psychological distress according to a survey which finds that screen time, social media use, and problem gaming are all on the rise. More than one in three an estimated 328,000 students in grades 7 through 12 report moderate to serious psychological distress. Uh, this according to new survey results from an agency. Uh, this, is, this is in Canada, by the way. The Center for Addiction and Mental Health, they did this survey in Ontario, Canada. Um, so that one-third, that is clearly a very significant number of young people. And also, uh, disturbingly, they found that girls were twice as likely as boys to experience psychological distress. Um, now, they were surprised to see this number increase uh, from just 24% of this group of kids as recently as 2013, and then jumping to 34%, this is 2015 data, that's 10% jump in just two years. That's really a very, very big increase, uh, rather disturbing. Now, what do they mean exactly by psychological distress in these kids? Well, that was defined in the survey as symptoms of depression and anxiety, and they measured this using a six-item screening tool. Students were asked how often they felt nervous, hopeless, or worthless, among other indicators, during the last four weeks prior to being surveyed. 46% of girls indicated high levels of distress compared to 23% of boys, twice as many. <clears throat> now, before I even read the rest of this article about this research, 
you know, we can think about why is that? Um, well, talking about girls, uh, this is grade 7 to 12, okay? So uh, middle school up to high school. It doesn't take a lot to figure out and understand that girls are under a tremendous amount of pressure from so many different sources. Um, girls get signals from society and the media that they have to look a certain way, their body has to be a certain shape, or they're not going to be socially acceptable or attractive to boys. And on top of that, especially in middle school, uh, girls have a tendency to have very unhealthy relationships as far as uh, verbal and cyber bullying of their peers. Um, and uh, older adolescent girls, uh, unfortunately, are often put under pressure by boys to engage in sexual activity that they may not be comfortable engaging in, including sexting. Uh, girls are often pressured or shamed by boys into taking pictures of themselves and sharing them, and this can be very, very damaging. So those would be my guesses as to why girls are so, in so much more distress nowadays than boys. The levels of distress also increased significantly in the later teens as opposed to the younger teens to an average of over 40% of students who were in distress in grades 11 and 12. Uh, one in five, 21%, reported visiting a mental health professional at least once during the last year, a marked increase from 12% back in 1999. Well, <clears throat> while the researchers couldn't say for certain what is causing this distress, they pointed out that it's very important for parents, schools, and healthcare providers to be aware of what young people are telling us about their mental health. This research indicates that the later teen years into the 20s is the peak period of stress for many people. Uh, we didn't even talk yet about pressure to succeed uh, academically, uh, to get good grades, test scores, get into good schools, etc. Uh, screen time, social media use, and problem gaming are on the rise. All right, so let's see what connections the researchers found between increasing levels of stress and distress and those factors. Uh, the survey results show that in 2015, almost two-thirds, or 63% of the students, spent three hours or more per day in their free time in front of a TV or tablet or computer. The percentage of students who are screen time sedentary has increased from 57% since 2009, the first year of monitoring 
this behavior. At the same time, while the majority of students rate their health as excellent or very good, 66% did so, only 22% of students met the recommended daily physical activity guideline defined as a total of at least 60 minutes of moderate to vigorous activity per day during the past seven days. Wow. Can you imagine, God forbid, 60 minutes a day of <clears throat> moderate to vigorous activity? Now, if a kid plays a sport, they've got that covered. But what if they don't? And if you can also imagine, you know, an almost two-thirds spend three hours or more in front of a screen. Um, I have a hard time reconciling that with the amazing amount of homework kids get nowadays. They get so much homework. And uh, so when are they doing all that? If they're spending three or more hours in front of the screen not doing work. <clears throat> well, the other thing about the physical activity, or the lack thereof, I should say, is that to me that's an obvious connection between such heightened levels of distress and the increase in screen time. Because as we well know, no matter what the age group, physical activity is a great way to reduce levels of stress and distress. So if kids are spending more time on the screen at the expense of any physical activity, uh, I think that is one mechanism uh, whereby they're more stressed and distressed. <clears throat> so also 86% of students, almost 90%, visit social media sites daily and about 16% spend five hours or more on social media per day. Uh, there's also a lot of peer pressure that comes from that, right? So uh, updating your Facebook status or profile or if uh, they find Facebook passe uh, because their parents are also on it. There are other things that kids get into, uh, Snapchat and what have you, for example. So the researchers point out the more time spent on social media sites, the greater the incidence, the risk of cyberbullying and related mental health issues and low self-esteem. All right, got to take another commercial break. We'll be back with more on this study after that. This is Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website 
located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. The United States Justice Foundation, since 1979, has been dedicated to instructing, informing, and educating the public on legal issues confronting America. That means you and me. When necessary, this nonprofit organization has had to litigate to present the constitutional view. Since 1980, USJF has submitted testimony to the U.S. Senate on all but one U.S. Supreme Court nominee. Learn more about USJF by visiting their website at www.usjf.net. Support this nonprofit as it defends our rights, our liberty, and our Constitution. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. Right now, we're talking about a disturbing study that comes out of Ontario, Canada, showing a very, very high rate of mental distress among middle and high school students. Can't imagine it's much different here in the States. Kids uh, in modern Western North American societies face similar pressures. Uh, Now, an estimated 13% of students reported symptoms of a video gaming problem, including preoccupation with loss of control over, withdrawal when not playing, and disregard for consequences of playing excessively. The percentage of students indicating a video gaming problem rose to 13% in 2015 from 9% in 2007, the first year they started monitoring this. Problem video gaming is especially prevalent among boys in this age group with 20% reporting problematic symptoms compared with only 5% of girls. Well, what does all this mean? Um, One person who commented on the findings said the reality is that it's not possible to be technology abstinent in 2016. But it is possible to have good cyber health, as it were, that is to balance screen time with other activities and to prevent technology from having serious negative consequences on the rest of your life. For those who develop problems, it is important that the underlying and concurrent issues are addressed so that healthier tech use is achievable. And that means pay attention to things like anxiety, depression, ADHD, bipolar, if it's there. Um, What can parents do, uh, assuming kids don't have problems that serious? Well, I personally think 
if a kid shows any sort of athletic inclination whatsoever, at least a club sport, if not uh, a varsity, junior varsity, or freshman, or whatever level they're in, uh, you know, if the kid is engaged in a sport through school or club or rec league, they're going to have games, they're going to have practices. That is going to give them the physical activity that is so much healthier for them. It's also going to take away free time so that between school and uh, their practices and games, you're going to have no choice but to spend their f- more of their free time on homework and less just free time around screens, so that's less preoccupation with social media um, and less preoccupation with video games. All right, so what do you do if your kid just does not have any athletic inclination whatsoever? <clears throat> Find out what else they're interested in. Uh, are they into art? Uh, whatever it may be, painting, sculpting, um, woodworking. Um, get them to engage more in whatever their passion might be. Um, do they like theater? That takes up a, a lot of time. Okay, rehearsals um, and the shows themselves uh, takes up a lot of time. Again, um, they will definitely want to um, just spend more free time on their homework. There won't be time elsewhere. Same with um, choir or orchestra, band, music, you know, some sort of good extracurricular activity. Um, I think that's the key to minimizing the excess screen time and keeping them engaged in activities that will keep their level of psychological stress to a reasonable level. Well, you know, we've talked about ADHD a couple of times on tonight's show. Here is a very disturbing study that shows that one-third of women with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder also have anxiety disorders, and almost half have considered suicide. Women with ADHD are much more likely to have a wide range of physical and mental health problems in comparison to women without ADHD, uh, according to a new study also from Canada, this one from researchers at the University of Toronto. The prevalence of mental illness among women with ADHD was disturbingly high, 46% having seriously considered suicide, 36% having generalized anxiety disorder, or GAD. For those of you who don't know, GAD is people who just are excessively and constantly anxious and worrying uh, about things that uh, are are so unimportant uh, and unreasonable that it becomes disabling and incapacitating. Uh, And then also 31% of these women have major depression, 39% have substance abuse problems at some point in their life. Now that's not so much of a surprise. We definitely have known uh, all along that uh, anybody with ADHD 
has a higher risk of substance abuse. This has uh, mostly been looked at in boys and men, but certainly women are also sub subject to this. But these rates of these problems are so much higher compared to women who don't have ADHD. Um, four times the odds of suicidal thoughts and generalized anxiety disorders, twice the odds of having major depression and substance abuse compared to women without ADHD. Investigators looked at a representative sample of 3,900 Canadian women between the ages of 20 and 39, uh, of whom 107 reported they had been diagnosed with ADHD. Data was drawn from the 2012 Canadian Community Health Survey on mental health, and the researchers were surprised at the high levels of physical health problems that these women were experiencing. More than one in four, or 28% of these relatively young women, said that physical pain prohibited some of their activities which was much higher than the 9% of their peers without ADHD who had disabling pain. Insomnia was also more prevalent in the women with ADHD <clears throat> compared to those without, 43.9% versus 12.2%. Um, insomnia in general is much more common in people with ADHD, so that doesn't surprise me. Uh, my patients with ADHD typically report that whereas most of us, when we lie down and go to bed at night, can just let our mind go blank and drift off and go to sleep if we're tired enough and we're not extremely distressed about something else, that they can never do that. That mind is always active, always working, always processing something, so that it's very, very typical that men and women both have a lot of trouble just shutting off the mind and therefore having trouble falling asleep. Smoking is also much more prevalent in women with versus without ADHD, 41% versus 22%, almost twice as much. Uh, again, if you know anything about people with ADHD, smoking and substance abuse, much more prevalent, but the thing about smoking is that nicotine promotes alertness and focus. So, of course, if you have ADHD and you have trouble with both of those, you're going to be more likely someone who will be a smoker. Now, the study does not prove or provide, rather, any insight into why women with ADHD are so vulnerable. It's possible that some of these mental health problems may be caused by and or contributing to financial stress. Uh, I think what they're referring to is that uh, one of the problems that people with ADHD have is that they have trouble keeping jobs. Uh, unfortunately, people with ADHD um, as a group, certainly with some exceptions, have difficult job histories. They uh, don't stay with jobs very long. Uh, their resumes 
you look very busy going from job to job to job and that can uh, put you into financial stress of course uh, the study found that one in three women 37 percent with ADHD reported that they had difficulty meeting basic expenses such as food shelter and clothing due to their inadequate household income for women without ADHD, only 13% had this shortfall. Well, the article doesn't say, but uh, perhaps it could be that the ADHD, which commonly interferes with academic achievement and performance, is also uh, why these women have more economic problems. If you weren't able to complete your education, that certainly limits your employment opportunities, which in turn would interfere with your uh, financial status. Many people think of ADHD as primarily a boy's disorder, which has little relevance for girls and women. These findings certainly suggest strongly to the contrary. A large portion of women with ADHD are struggling with mental illness, physical health concerns, and poverty. And the authors feel in light of these problems, it's very important that primary health care providers are particularly vigilant in monitoring and treating their female patients with ADHD. The study was published online this past week in the journal Child Care Health and Development. Now, I do want to just address the thing about the stereotypes, boys versus girls, uh, certainly, the ADHD with hyperactivity is much more common in boys, whereas girls far less often have the hyperactivity. That's the reason, I think, for the uh, gender stereotype differences. We're going to have to wrap the show up tonight. At that, folks, I appreciate you taking the time to listen. I enjoyed bringing this information. Hope you enjoyed it yourself, and I hope you have a wonderful, stress-free week till we get together next time. But if not, you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.